Joining me on the pod today is Jack Silverstein. If you read Office Hours regularly, which I hope you do, you saw an excerpt from his insane, insane, insanely grail-like get of <laughs> Richard Esquinas, um, the man who wrote a book in 1993 about, well, Jack, what did he write a book about? Well, he wrote a book about gambling on the golf course with Michael Jordan over the course of three years and then trying to get Michael to pay a substantial debt uh, over the course of, I guess, two years. Um, It's a book called Michael and Me, Our Gambling Addiction, My Cry for Help, and it's a fascinating time capsule. It's interesting for, I guess, two to three reasons. One, because the book alleged that Jordan had run up a $1.252 million golf debt to the author uh, Richard Esquinas over the course of 10 days in San Diego in September of 1991. And the publication of the book, and it was uh, published in May of 93, but it was actually, it came out to the public in June of 93, the day before the Bulls wrapped up the Eastern Conference Finals against the Knicks. And the publication of the book and that number, 1.252 million, became an enormous news story at a time when Jordan was already having a lot bubbling around him about his gambling activities. It actually was released while Jordan was already in the midst of a media boycott because the New York press had taken him to task for a late-night Atlantic City trip during uh, the first two games of the East Finals, which were in New York. So it's interesting because of what it meant at the time. And it's certainly interesting because it's so hard to find and it's an interesting time capsule. It's also really interesting because it's the only book that I can think of where someone was writing freely about just what it was like to hang out with Jordan on a day-to-day basis. Right, and that's the part that I, th- I thought was super interesting. Like, this dude yeah. wasn't just, like, a hanger-on who was, like, oh, I was a fly on the wall. Like, this dude, you saw like, the picture you shared. Like, he's playing next to this man. Like, they're, they're hand-in-hand, they're hanging out. So I think that's the part that was super interesting to me where it's like, okay, you know, and, and from my, my point, it's like, okay, the timing, not great, obviously, if you're the team or anyone of that sort. But then I kind of want to get to around the infamous elephant in the room where it's like, do you believe – that the, this book led to or had something to do with Michael Jordan retiring for the first time and going to play baseball. Yeah, 100%. It for sure did. So I am very vocal about the fact that Michael, in my opinion, and it is a, it is a well-researched, well-read, well-thought opinion, that Michael retired on his own. There was no secret suspension. This man had been talking about wanting to retire young, and he'd been talking about it publicly since 1986. He was on Letterman his second season after the playoffs saying that he wanted to retire in his early 30s and join the PGA Tour. And he spoke about it, again, in public venues, in Sports Illustrated. It was in the Jordan Rules. He talked about it uh, with teammates. He talked about it with uh, Cheryl Ray Stout. He talked about it with a lot of people. talked about it with his father. Um, And... Uh, so I've been very vocal to say, no, this is, this is a legitimate retirement. However, whether he would have retired after 93 or after 94 or after 95, and considering that he ultimately played until 2003, 
you could call his retirement after the 98 season an early retirement. So the question is, was he always going to retire after 1993? And he did talk about it at that point. You know, we saw the interview in the last episode of The Last Dance that he did with Ahmad Rashad where he's wearing sunglasses. And he said there, I can retire soon. And when I do, I want people to remember X, Y, Z. And Ahmad said, is soon, could that be this year? And he said, it could be. It was already on his mind. The reason that I say that the book by Aeschines helped push him in that direction was because when that number came out and that book came out, it took the gambling conversation to a whole new level around Jordan, even though at this point he had already been discovered as someone who had owed money to a convicted cocaine dealer. He had to testify in this man's federal trial on, uh, on uh, money laundering and coke trafficking. He'd had monies discovered on the, uh, in the briefcase of a man who'd been murdered in a home invasion or murdered in a robbery at his house in North Carolina. And this man had three checks from Jordan totaling 108,000. And that 108,000 was the biggest number that we had on the record in terms of a Jordan gambling loss until this number, which is 10 times that amount, 1.252. And when that book came out or when it hit the news June 3rd of 93, until Jordan retired October 6th of 93, every story that had anything to do with Jordan off the court included mention of this person. And all of a sudden, this was something that everybody was talking about. Um, it, he, was, he was doing interviews with Bob Costas, with Connie Chung. Because they did an interview during the playoffs for- at one point, right? Yeah, so he did the day that the book came out. He did an interview with Bob Costas that they aired the next day on NBC News Today, and then Costas and Brian Gumble were discussing it, and um, and then he later did an interview with Connie Chung because she did a one-on-one with Jordan, so they so she brought him in as well. Um, he was being interviewed by radio stations, by newspapers, and the New York media. Oh gosh. They were so excited to have something this negative on yeah, Jordan. Yeah, about Michael Jordan. About Michael Jordan. Because nothing and, positive has happened to their basketball team since. Yeah. Well, yeah. You, you 70, know already. 73. Yeah, exactly. But then, very tragically, this is the same summer that James Jordan, Michael's father, was killed. And, uh, and, and news of James's death he, first, he was announced that he was missing, and then a day later, they said, okay, actually, we, we've got this John Doe, and this is James Jordan. Well, that came four days after news broke that when Eskinas had met with the NBA's investigators in July of 93, so the month before, he had told them on advice of his counsel, who said, you got to tell them everything you know, he had told the investigator that he had overheard Jordan talking about a betting spread, a point spread. And that comment... While Eskinas was like, you know, this is just sort of a normal thing that people who are interested in sports talk about, even if you're not a gambler. That comment forced the NBA's hand to have to continue, if it was a ruse of an investigation, if it was a phony investigation, well, they had to maintain that ruse even longer. But then Jordan's father got killed. So they couldn't go hard going after him to bring him into New York to have an interview because the guy's in deep mourning. And it was all of these strands that were coming together that were tugging at Jordan, who was already considering retirement. And every time you read about Jordan, it was Eskinas, Eskinas. 
$1.25 million. So he just got fed up, you think? He got totally fed up, and he said, all right, that's good. I'm out. Okay, that's interesting. And, I, and so I want to kind of take that, that conversation now that we've we put that to bed officially, ladies and gentlemen. We've solved the problem. If you had any questions, we just did it. Uh, so you're welcome. But the next thing I want to talk about is your reaction to the series itself. Uh, I know you're working on a book, actually, about the Chicago Bulls championship dynasty. Uh, so I kind of want to get a sense as somebody who's legitimately been researching these teams that we've been seeing throughout the, the last dance, you know, from the early early championships to this this last dance team, I guess we'll call it now. Yeah. What are some things that, like, you think are interesting little anecdotes or little things that you think people should pay attention to in the episodes that they've seen so far? Maybe it's something people can go back and check out. Well, certainly one thing that I'm really interested in and that drives a lot of the conversation and that drives the title because the title comes from what Phil named the season is this idea of who was ultimately responsible for this team seemingly breaking up before the natural end of their run. And you've got all these different parties, Reinsdorf, Krauss, Jordan, Jackson, really are the four. I don't really think you can put Pippen too much in there. Um, I did a pie chart at one point, and I think I came up with Pippen was about, you know, 4 or 8%, something like that. That's crazy. Um, yeah, pretty low. Um, so that's really interesting, and I'm hoping that we see a little bit more of that. I think they're really killing Kraus. And the thing is, is that the people who even speak positively of Kraus end up insulting him. And so you don't have to go double on that. I mean, you can say nice things about Jerry Krause and acknowledge the right. moves that yeah. he made to put this team together. Right. Um, and when you think about that 98 team, he traded Stacey King straight up for Luke Longley. He traded Will Purdue straight up for Dennis Robin. The Dennis Rodman acquisition he made because he trusted that Phil Jackson was the coach who could get through to Rodman and that Michael Jordan was the star who could get through to Rodman. And he brought Jack Haley in, Rodman's friend from San Antonio, as someone who would be another kind of buffer and protector and enforcer for Rodman. Um, and Krauss trusted Phil Jackson to do that. Phil said, this was ultimately my call. And the power of Krauss and Phil working together in their respective strengths is what made that Rodman acquisition even plausible. And then the fact that Michael is who he is, Steve Kerr told uh, Roland Lazenby, who's written a, a bunch of books about the Bulls, but he wrote that wonderful biography of Jordan. And Steve Kerr told Lazenby something like that. The key word I remember was subservient. He said Rodman was somehow naturally subservient to Jordan in a, almost like a puppy dog way. And there's an interview with Rodman with Lou Canellis in the 95-96 season. The icon Lou Canellis. I love Lou Canellis, I know. An icon. Shout out to Lou. And he says, uh, he says, you know, you've played with some great players. You've played with Hall of Famers. You've played with, obviously, Isaiah and Joe Dumars. You've played with David Robinson. Where do, they, where do these guys fit in? Remember, th these are guys who Dennis was beating up. I mean, he was, you know, yeah, people forget. I, I don't think a lot of people remembered if you weren't of that age that like Dennis Rodman was a bad boy. <laughs> like he was a bad boy piston. And it's interesting to see that like we've kind of it's like Ben Wallace and Dennis Rodman are the only two we allow in the same conversation around like Detroit and Chicago people, I guess. Yeah, I mean, Dennis Rodman, you gotta remember that first year, you know, the Bulls obviously greatest 
overall season of all time. You know, the Warriors have the best regular season ever, and the 2001 Lakers, in my opinion, have the best postseason ever. It went 15 and one against four 50 win teams, and the only loss they had was the AI 48 point the step over on Ty Lue. That's the only loss they had in the playoffs. They had to take that loss though, because after he did that, you can't win that game. Can't win it. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's a wrap. <laughs> but uh, but the but the '96 Bulls have the best overall season, 72 and 10. You know, 15 and three, won 87 of 100 games, and a third of that roster was ex Bad Boy Pistons. Am I doing the math right? Three of 12. Sorry, a quarter of the roster. It's like it was like uh, this four, yeah. Yeah, sorry. Uh, Rodman, James Edwards, and John Sally, and that was really really strange at the time. And that was a reason why my reaction to the to the '96 Bulls was kind of muted, even though it was such a cultural spectacular. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, Rodman was not just a bad boy; he was in some respects the bad boy. I mean, it was Lambeer and Still Rodman. To this day, yeah, Can't yeah, stand. Lambeer on another level, and Rodman and uh, and Mahorn. Um, and they got rid of Mahorn because they put him in the expansion draft, so he wasn't there that next year. He wasn't there when we beat him at '91. And Rodman coming to the Bulls was bizarre, but Phil knew how to handle him, and Krause knew how to give the trust to the, these pieces that he'd put in place. And get back around to my point, you know, I do wish they were making more of a point in the documentary about what Jerry Krause brought to the table. He was a real pain in the ass. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the first GM of the Bulls, Pat Williams, who went on, he was the GM of the Magic. Yep. with Shaq and Penny, and he's the one who gave Rodman the nickname The Sleuth. And there are so many quotes from general managers saying, you can't make a deal with Kraus. He wants to take everybody you've got. Um, and you saw how Michael reacted to playing Dan Marley because Kraus was enamored with Dan Marley. He was enamored with Tony Kukoc. He sort of like glommed on to these people his gems who he was yeah, going I feel to like he would have saw Luka Doncic and like Woo! had a stroke. Luka Doncic would have like <laughs> literally so put Jerry Cross in the morgue if he went for that. Oh I my should make goodness. fun of that. That's so true. That's so perfect. Yeah, I thought about that the other day. I was like, oh, that, yeah, that would have been his type. <laughs> you know, people got yeah. a type. That's his type. But imagine that you're at a time where, you know, Europeans aren't playing in the NBA. Yeah, because that's like, I mean, around this time, this is the 90, this would technically be the 98 draft. So, I mean, that's an iconic draft, but like, that's the, that's Dirk. Um, and I don't know pre, like, obviously, like Tony Kukoc, Drazen Petrovic, like European. Vladi. Vladi, Vladi, of course. Vladi was the kickoff. Right. And so for yes. me, it's like, was he early on that? Because it kind of yeah. looks like he was early on that. He was. He was absolutely early. And, and his thing was always trying to find talent where no one else was looking. Right. One of the things that he loved about the job was going places and going by yourself and sitting by yourself and doing the work and sitting and taking notes and finding the guy. I mean, that was part of why he loved Scotty because he was from central Arkansas. No one had heard of this school. It wasn't a basketball program. Um, so that was that was what Jerry was all about. And I, so I do wish the documentary was making more of a point to show what Jerry is about and to also humanize him. We saw the Jordan background portion. We saw the Scottie Pippen background portion. We saw the Phil Jackson background portion. We should have had 
had a Jerry Krause backstory, and he's got an incredible backstory. He's a Chicago guy. He was general manager of the Bulls in the 70s and got fired when it leaked that he had made an offer to head coach to Ray Meyer. And then when DePaul Ray Meyer? DePaul Ray Meyer, yeah. So Jerry oh, wow. Krause tried to hire Ray Meyer for, uh, as Bulls head coach and then kind of like took it back when he realized he sort of overstepped and then it got out and it was, you know, it was, it was almost the same thing as like the Michael versus Jerry thing. Like you're not going to win a PR battle in this town against Ray Meyer. It got his, got him kicked out of town. Um, but then he was scouting, you know, he's a baseball scout as well. He was, he was scouting for the White Sox and that's when he and Jerry Reinsdorf linked up because Jerry bought the White Sox in 81 and then he bought the Bulls in 85. Jerry Krause, the day after he was hired uh, as GM, hired Tex Winter. He had told Tex Winter, when I get a job, you get a job. And the story goes that when Tex Winter was at home and he saw the news or he saw the press conference of Jerry Krause being uh, introduced as Bulls GM, he said to his wife, this man's going to call me and give me a job. And that's what Jerry Krause did. He brought in Tex Winter. And one of the reasons he brought in Tex Winter was because he and Jerry Reinsdorf were aligned in their love of team basketball and the systems that Tex Winter had. And Jerry Reinsdorf, having come up as a New Yorker, loved the Red Holtzman 70s Knicks teams that Phil Jackson played on. And that's how they all got, you know, became infatuated with Phil because Phil played for Red Holtzman. I would have loved to have seen a little bit more of this because no matter how much you humanize Jerry Krause, he's still going to come off like a pain in the ass because that's the way he was. And that's how he talked. And he, and he said stupid shit about people. And he, you know, he, the, the whole organizations win championships and that's been misquoted and he would be, he would correct people. And he did an interview with uh, uh, Woj not long before he passed away in 2017. And he said, I didn't say organizations win championships. I said players and coaches alone don't win championships. Organizations do. And it's a lovely sentiment until you realize that he's trying to use that as kind of leverage against having to pay people or to admit that people are doing a great job. Um, Tim Floyd had a really telling quote when Tim Floyd all of a sudden went on his media tour. And it turned out that that, uh, Jerry Krause had been talking to Floyd about the Bulls head coaching job before he had even fired Doug Collins. And Tim Floyd said, Jerry always had a coach in his back pocket. He said, if he had hired me in 1989, he would have had a coach in his back pocket. And Phil was one of the people who was floated as a coach for the Bulls when Stan Albeck was hired. So Krause was always looking at ways to kind of move the pieces around and manipulate everything. And I wish they would have done a little bit better job of at least putting us in his shoes because right, right, he's a, right, he's a right, fascinating right. character. That's amazing. So, you know, whether, when this runs, um, the following week will be the final two episodes of the series. So mm-hmm. in your opinion, what are the things that like you have to talk about that you haven't seen so far with the understanding that, you know, we have not seen episodes uh, six and seven or oh, sorry. Seven, um, seven and eight. Seven and eight. Yeah. We haven't seen yeah. seven and eight as of taping this. So obviously we're a couple episodes behind, but right. I want to get a sense of like, how do you end this? Is it, is it the shot is the shot too? I guess, I, I guess it is, but like, is it just like 20 minutes of just like shitting on Byron Russell? Like, what is it like, you know what I'm saying? Like, what are they going to just be like, okay, well, 
let's talk about the Jazz. Or I don't, I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I'll be curious to see. I'll be curious to see what they do. Obviously, you've got like a few different possible endings. Certainly, you go through the end of Game Six. Um, so the question is, because it's called the Last Dance, are they going to get into the breakup? Right. That's the question be- I have. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, are they going to do like a coda where they show that flurry of trades? There was this 10-day period um, from when MJ retired January 13th, 1999, and the 10 days following that where they just started executing all of the sign-in trades. And one point that they have not made in the documentary is that uh, we had 10 players who were in the last year of their contract, and Phil, who was in the last year of his contract. Michael and uh, Phil and Dennis were all on one-year deals. So, I mean, they've sort of made that point because they have in the, in the, in the intro, they have all the stuff about, like, this will be Phil's last season. But, um, but it, was this, it was this crazy domino effect where in, I think it was August of 98, they announced, or maybe July, they announced Tim Floyd as something called director of basketball operations. And they said, well, we hope Phil comes back. And uh, if he comes back, then Tim Floyd will just be in this role. But if he doesn't come back, then Tim Floyd, I mean, that was horseshit because first of all, Phil had already packed up his office before the finals ended and, and he bounced I and mean, he was back right. in Montana like a week at, like right after grand park. Yeah. Um, and second of all, you don't hire a guy to be like the replacement of the guy. It reminds me of the story that uh, nobody trusted Francis Ford Coppola to direct The Godfather. They only yeah. hired him because he was young and cheap. Yeah. So they hired a second director to just follow him around and take notes yeah. so that if they had to fire him, they could just slide this guy That's in. crazy. Can you and, imagine just getting um, micromanaged to that level? Yeah, he, uh, Coppola talked about it. He said he was like, there was a guy who was just following me. He had like a book and he was just like taking notes on what I was doing so that he could be the director. Um, I love that. Yeah, so I don't know. I don't know where you end it. I mean, I mean, I think I have my, a perfect, I have a perfect idea. I believe yeah, that me, the last, me. the last shot should okay. be the Bulls drafting Ron Artest. That's it. Just be like, why that one? Just because it's Ron Artest, and I think Meta World Peace is somebody who we should celebrate more in we our lives. Talk a little bit more about. I mean, so that's a really, but that's an interesting point because. You know, we talk about how the rebuild failed, and that's a yeah. huge. So that's a huge piece of this story. Well, well, wait, real quick, real quick, before track. you get into oh, yeah, it, ahead, I want to talk ahead. about the concept of rebuilds because, as a Bulls fan, tracking and this is just as super deep Bulls fan nonsense, but I believe personally that we are on our fourth rebuild, right? So you yeah. think since since the end of that team, right? So you think about that early team where it was the the Brad Miller, you know. Uh, Jay Williams, 2002-ish, that Bulls era. That was even and, after. The first rebuild right. was Elton Brand and Ron Artest. You're right. You're absolutely right. That Elton Brand and Ron Artest. Rebuild. And then it was that, that group of... And the second one was Tyson and Eddie. Tyson and Eddie. Because but, when they traded Elton to get Tyson, that was right. number. That was like, all right, we messed this one up. Now we're yep. going on to this one. Right. And so then you take that one, you go, okay, that one did work. And I think that's, they drafted Heinrich. I think it was like a stopgap guy. But I think that he was the start of that, of the rebuild that gave us you know, Noah yep. and that team that culminated with Derrick Rose. Yep. And so that one worked and it's like, great, but it blew up because we couldn't keep everybody. And obviously what happened happened. So I guess 
if you're a Bulls fan and you've been a Bulls fan since, I don't know, I'll call it 1990, you have seen more rebuilds, almost as many rebuilds as you have championships. If you were born mm-hmm. after 1995, you have seen only rebuilds. So as a Bulls fan, I know you're a Bulls fan as well. Like, does the history of the Bulls and the franchise give any hope to the fact that this could be something that happens again? Like, do I think this new regime is going to turn it around? Yeah. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> I mean, I'm concerned that they Obi-Wan'd Pax. I mean, he should just be out the door. I don't – that was, like, the strangest thing to me is that, like, again, it's the same idea. Like, why would you want to take a job and your predecessor is now allegedly, like, valued counsel? Yeah. Like – Love you, Pax. Get out. I mean, I don't think that's rude to say. I mean, John Paxson had a great run. And John Paxson is the one who brought the Bulls back to the playoffs after MJ and Scotty. Pax was the one who took over when Jerry Krause retired. And Pax was the one who came in. And he is the one who fired his ex-teammate, Bill Cartwright, as head coach, which couldn't have been easy, and hired Scott Skiles. He got rid of his other ex-teammate, Scottie Pippen, after the 4 season because Scottie had come back that one year, which is terrible because now we have pictures of, like, old Scottie, and they'll put, like, the pictures yeah. of old Scottie next to Kawhi, and they'll be like, who's the better small forward? And I'm like, well, if you use a goddamn picture of Scottie yeah. 2004 yeah. in his headband, like, come on. <laughs> um, so he did those things. He traded Jalen Rose in a package that brought in Antonio Davis, and and then he oversaw the – 04 rookie infusion where he drafted Ben Gordon. He sort of drafted Luol Dang in a trade. He drafted Chris Duhon in the second round. And then they signed Nocioni, who was fresh off that gold medal with Argentina. So that team that went back to the playoffs in 05, you've got four rookies who we brought and Antonio Davis and a number of other vets. So Pax has had a great run, but it was like, this dude's been employed by the team since, I think it's October 29th, 1985, in a, in a string of jobs. And he's been employed by the team since then. Yeah, lifer. So it's just like that to me smacks of like the old way of doing things. Like just fire packs and go all in on the new thing. And commit to it. Also, yeah, and firmly on the record i want to say that i believe i know ben gordon won six man of the year that year mm-hmm. but i know it's only because they couldn't give him six man and rookie of the year he deserved both that's and totally that, that's the hill i'll die on like ben gordon should have been rookie of the year that year he totally should have been yeah and oh man that <laughs> uh, i love that team i love that team so Me much too. So, and we'll get to them in the next documentary that i'm sure that they're going to do about you know uh, <laughs> oh, this is gonna the Aaron open, Gray Bulls. No, this is <laughs> this is going to open the floodgates. Um, oh, we're getting t- we're getting we're getting Showtime Lakers. I think we're getting the Cel- we're going to get a Celtics one. I feel like all the teams are seeing this and going, "Well, why don't our team have one?" And it's you only remember, like, yeah, you remember when they put the statue up of Mike? Yeah, and then and then like immediately in its wake, every team was like, "Well, fuck it, we're putting up a statue of our best guy." Yeah. My, Miami, Miami just like retired his number just cause. <laughs> That's one of my favorite pieces. I love that. And um, uh, the the director of the Last Dance, Jason Hahir, had an interview right before it aired with uh, Waddle and Sylvie, and he was talking about his first meeting with Jordan, where he went out 
for drinks with him. And they were talking about all sorts of things, kind of getting to know each other. And Jordan said that the, the one person who he really thought understood his level of competitiveness and who understood the, the tone of his Hall of Fame speech, which people who really know him have said, right. no, that's, that's the real Michael. Michael said the one person who he really thought was on the same level of him uh, as him. You want to know who it was? Who? Pat Riley. Okay. He said Pat Riley was the one guy who he thought was like of the same mindset in terms of competitiveness, um, okay. which I thought was really cool. And Pat Riley, yeah, retired MJ's number. The first two numbers hanging from the rafters in Miami were Dan Marino and Michael Jordan. All right. All right. Well, that's great to know. So, Jack, um, do we know when the book's coming out? 2021, exact date, way TBD. I would, I would venture a guess would be June the earliest for sure um but that's what the newsletter is about it's about being able right. to kind of bring so tell people where to find because i mean you have all kinds of chicago sports knowledge i do believe you were single-handedly one of the people who like have gotten like devin hester has just due nationally like i feel like you're that thread went crazy um <laughs> so i want to so tell people where to find your newsletter and how to get it and why they should and i know why they should but you should tell them Definitely. So the newsletter is readjack.substack.com. Readjack.substack.com. And it's called A Shot on Elo. And it's all of my research in real time. Because when I'm writing big projects, you take a, like a giant article like the one that I did a couple months ago on Jordan's comeback uh, from baseball that I did yep. for NBC. And as I'm writing those, you know, the research is to me really exciting. It's more exciting than the writing. And I, sure. I have all these gems I want to share with people, but you can't like do that in any right. way. And you don't want to like bog people down who don't care about this stuff. And, you know, I text my friends, oh, let me tell you. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to do this as a newsletter. And I've got, um, I've got newsletters that are specifically for the people who have signed up for free and newsletters that are specifically for the people who have signed up um, as paid subscribers, of which there are a lot, and I'm very grateful to them. Yep. And what's I've been, I've been very proud to say that the number of NBA and basketball writers who pay for my newsletter is, uh, I think it's like a fifth or a sixth of all my subscribers are actual other NBA writers, which is really cool. I love that. Uh, the, the, the stuff that I'm running on there is definitely interviews. So I did an interview with a guy named Chris Mott, who was a Bulls ball boy uh, from 93 to 98. And he became friends with Scottie Pippen. He was one of only two people who weren't players who was invited to Scottie's wedding with Larsa in 1997. Um, he talked about like how he knew the right amount of sticks of gum that Ron Harper wanted and that Scottie wanted. And you can see him in photos under the basket of Scotty's dunk on Patrick Ewing. Mm. Uh, just going like, oh, whoa. <laughs> he went, Oprah had him on because she was doing like a series or maybe just an episode on people with interesting jobs. And so I he, love that. Yeah, so I did that. There was a guy named Matt Stegenga who was a journeyman forward. The Bulls had drafted him in 92 out of Michigan State. He never caught on. He played overseas. He played in the CBA. And – uh, at the end of the 97 season, he called Jerry Krause. He was like, oh, you know, you guys are going to be home. You got two more home games. 
uh, he, he called him up and he, uh, you know, I'd love to get tickets. And Krause called him back and said, well, how about playing on the team? Because Bill Wennington was hurt. They had just signed Brian Williams, so they're working him in. And Tony Kukoc was out for a short stint on, on, uh, on the injured list. And so they were like, let's bring in Stegenga. And so he played two games, total of 12 minutes, and they kept him on the playoff roster, you know, on IR, but they kept him on the playoff roster as like another body. Yeah. And so he got to make the whole run. That's crazy. And he was introduced at Grant Park. And, you know, because it's done in order of importance. He's the first person. <laughs> he's the first person. But he was like, the crowd was so keyed up. And Ray Clay, yeah, and yeah. Ray Clay is out there doing the and now. Yeah. They could have said anybody's name. They could have yeah. said my name. They could have said your name. Yeah. He goes, been, they said yep. Matt Stegenga. He yeah. goes, the he goes, the people who got the biggest cheers were me and, and MJ. Yeah. And uh so that's that's a story that uh that's on there for the paid subscribers. Obviously the the Richard Esquinas interview, and it's his first interview since nineteen ninety-three. Um, or anyhow, his first interview about this, he's become like a uh, a yoga instructor and he's got a lot of other content out there, but this was his first interview about this. And it took me 15 months, 14 or 15 months to lock him in. So I tracked him down and we did a, like an hour long call off the record. And then I spent a little over a year just trying to be like, let's get back on the phone and everything you said off the record, say it on the record. Um, and, uh, and so that sort of thing is on there when I did this big piece on NBC, little bits that were super interesting. Those were pieces. Um, so there's a lot going on and, uh, it's definitely worth the money. And as I say, if you understand what I'm going to say, then this newsletter is for you. And if you don't, uh, understand it, then it's not for you, but the cost is packs in a month or pip in a year. That's all I'm going to say about that. Jack Silverstein, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on, man. I appreciate your time. I'm looking forward to continuing to read the newsletter. All right, man? Thanks, bro. I appreciate it. Anytime.